See, this is why oftentimes we come to the word with our already understanding that we have, and then we try to force the scripture into our philosophy. I'm going to say it twice because it needs to be said again. See, if I come to scripture and I come with my philosophy already settled, then I'm trying to find scripture that support my philosophy rather than the scripture forming my philosophy. And that approach leaves no room for God to show you how much he truly loves you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And let's listen as Pastor Martin explains. We're continuing in our sermon series, the necessity of a biblical worldview. And last week we spent time establishing the need for a biblical worldview. Even going as far as working to define what a worldview is, and then concluding that everyone has a worldview whether we actively, either consciously or unconsciously know it, we operate day after day through our view of the world. This week we want to take up our series and we want to title it Affirming a Biblical Worldview. Because as we start to talk about worldview and start to understand that each one of us has one, we begin to see how that worldview, it informs how we respond in a given situation, but it also informs our understanding of what we perceive when we see something happening. It also helps us to understand that when we are gathering our thoughts around what should I do or how should I think concerning this matter, Having that informed by the scripture, scriptures will help us to always come to the place of realizing that we are not in this journey alone and that God by his providence has allowed for a means for his presence to reside in your heart to help bring clarity and understanding according to his word. Whether it's, as I said, whether it's conscious or unconscious, every one of us has a worldview. The question that we ask today is, is it biblical? Pastor Lara referenced that earlier. He says, we all have one, but is it biblical? Because as we understand our journey in this world, there's oftentimes difficulty trying to understand the world around us. A biblical worldview helps us to gain understanding that we would not otherwise have. Your personal worldview is a combination of all that you believe and think. And oftentimes that's shaped by where you've come from or the environment around you. I would pose this question. What do you think would happen if you were to go down to uh, any neighborhood in Dallas and grab a young African-American man at the age of three, take him and plant him in Japan, and he grows up there, born in America, raised in Japan. Do you think that his biblical, his worldview rather, would be the same as yours? It would not because it would be shaped 
by his environment. So all of us have a worldview that's been shaped by the environment through which we've come. So when we start to understand the need for a biblical worldview, we see the need based upon the fact that our worldview, it becomes the driving force of how we, of every emotion that we have. It becomes a driving force for the decisions that we make and actions that we take. Because of how significant a worldview is and the effects that it has, it becomes very clear because that also affects your philosophy for life and various different philosophical approaches you may take. Your worldview affects your theology of what you believe to be true about the scriptures. It affects how you understand law and politics. It affects how you understand economics. It impacts how you even understand art, what's artistic or not, and even how you understand social order. So if we understand that all these things are significant, can be impacted in significant ways, then we begin to settle into the fact that this is a true need for us. Now, it's important because there are worldviews that are not biblical. And oftentimes, we may not be fully aware that these worldviews are being, having an impact, have an impact on us, or they're being portrayed in such a way that the, that the impact may be subtle, but progressive. It happens because these ideas in the world, as we read the text, it says, don't deceive yourself. Because most of the things we've been talking about, the philosophies of how to describe God and, and how to respond in the world are oftentimes developed and created by highly educated people very intelligent people who have taken time and asked a question and then worked to answer that question, but very often without consulting the one who set it all up. It's interesting that, you know, I, I find myself doing this often is because I feel that I'm very crafty and I feel that I, I, I'm pretty mechanically inclined that when we get something that needs assembling, I go in, I open the box, I rip open all of the bags with all the pieces and I go to work. And then I get down the road a ways and I begin to realize, Brother Freeman, that if I'm going to actually do this, the way the designer intended it, I might need to consult the designer's instructions. Because if we're going to understand how the world functions, if we're going to understand how those that are in the world should function, we've got to start with the one who designed it and then gave instructions. It becomes important because these things that are sending messages to us, they affect how we communicate with our spouses. They affect how we raise our children. They affect how we function at work in the office. 
they oftentimes are informing on how, informing us on how we should even develop and maintain our current and future status in the world. So as we talk about this today, we're looking to affirm this sense of a biblical worldview. And so I told you last week we ran out of time and there's a lot to unpack when we're talking about these things. And so trying to stay true to the time frame that we set aside each week. Last week, there was a third question that I said that we would start with this week. So we're going to start our message this morning with yet another question. But this question is a carryover from last week. But it's so fitting to set us up for this week. The question that we have to start with this morning is, why does a biblical worldview matter? I think I've already touched on that, but there's some specific things that I want to share with you as to why it matters. Why does a biblical worldview matter? It matters because a person's worldview is a combination of all the things that they believe that are true. Think about things that you thought were true or you believe that are true, and then you discover. Even, even our scientists believe that the world was flat. And there was a fear, because if you've ever stood on the shore of the sea and you look out, it does literally look like when those ships get so far that they've just fallen off the edge. But eventually someone went further and realized that it, they just kept going around. So we understand that there are moments and times where we come to the table with an already perceived or perception of what's, what's, what's real or what's true. But it's important for us then to understand these matters. The first matter to deal with when we talk about why does it matter is this. A worldview is founded upon worldly wisdom is a futile endeavor. We see in the passage of Scripture, it says that God says, God has already declared that the wisdom of man or earthly wisdom is futile. That the effort of us trying to understand the world and have the view that is appropriate for, the, for our understanding, we must start with the one who designed us. We said, look at the text once more. In verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him first become a fool that he may become wise. Now, I know that that's uncomfortable language just to be talking about, don't call me no fool. You didn't, we didn't have had great battles over being called fool. So the idea of, of God saying, if you want to be wise, you must first become a fool. What he's saying is not fool in the terms of this person who's lack understanding. What he's saying is that you must release what you come to the table understanding and then allow, allow him to now build it back up so that you have the best understanding that he intended. He says, if you want to be wise, because that's outside of anything that we would think humanly, humanly possible. Why would I become a fool to become wise? But he says, my ways are not your ways, and neither are my thoughts your thoughts. 
And he says, they're so far as the east is from the west. See, this is why it's important for us when he says we must first become full because we've got to come to the word and not come. So, because oftentimes we come to the word with our already understanding that we have, and then we try to force the scripture into our philosophy. I'm going to say it twice because it needs to be said again. See, if I come to scripture and I come with my philosophy already settled, then I'm trying to find scripture that support my philosophy rather than the scripture forming my philosophy. That's what he's saying in the text. He says, you got to become a fool. You got to come to the table to learn. Jesus says, come after me and learn from me. Let me teach you something. Verse 19, he says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I referenced last week uh, a gentleman on a plane that, that was a scientist, very well-educated man, multiple PhDs, and he was going on about various different things he was questioning. But even as wise as he was, or as intelligent, I should say, as he was, God says, when he came to the conclusion that there is no God, he says, God says, all of the understanding that he has is all foolishness because of the conclusion that it's made. And even the psalmist has something to say about this. The psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because you have to understand that there are those who can argue and write books and volumes of information concerning this idea that God doesn't exist. And yet God says, because I know who I am and I, I am the great I am, whatever you come up with and however many volumes you come up with, I am still that which I say I am. He says, God catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise because they're futile. It's a futile endeavor for us to then try to understand the world without including God. Paul also addresses this in the second chapter of the same letter. If you go over to verses 2, Chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, look what he says. For I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. He says, when I came preaching, Paul was a very educated man. So he says, when I came, I came, I, I came to know nothing but the Christ and him crucified. Then he goes on to say, for I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration and of the spirit and power because he says, I wanted for your faith and the wisdom not to be the, not, not faith to be based upon or built upon the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So when we talk about this biblical worldview, you can't come to it and only come to it philosophically. You got to come to it with some faith. I'm going to say it again. You, you can't just come philosophically to this question, you've got to come with some faith because some things you're going to have to settle that God is God and I can't explain it. 
how can you explain how God is God? Because when you start to talk about it, you sound like you're talking yourself into a corner. You say things that, that, that you don't fully know how to really explain. But here's what God said. He says that the heavens declare my glory. See, when I, I don't know how to explain it, but when I look up and I see how the cosmos are staying in function and how everything operates year after year, century after century, and, he, and I know that he declared that he made it and he flung the stars in the sky. See, I can't go out and try to explain that. I have to just believe it. Because the next matter in response to why does a biblical worldview matter? The next matter is that because it informs biblically key areas of the human experience. There are key areas that your biblical worldview will inform in your life, in every human being's life. I'm going to cover five of them. It covers your understanding of God, your, uh, your understanding of creation, because you, you remember our textbooks did not teach us that God created the heavens and the earth. And there's volume after volume explaining otherwise, but it helps us understand who God is, helps us understand creation, it helps to inform humanity and how do we get here, because I just recall pictures of us starting out crawling and then each step, we got taller and more upright, and eventually now we were humans. And I love the movie, uh, Planet of the Apes. Yes, thank you. They had a, had a, it just blocked on me. I love this movie. I love the series. But I still wonder then why didn't they keep going? Because if that's the case, then there shouldn't be any more primates around. There shouldn't still be any more gorillas. Or... Because if the progression has happened, what chose that specific group that became us? It also helps us understand morality. And then finally, government. <laughs> Let me get into it. I'm going to run because I'm running out of time. I'm taking too long to set this one up. Here we go. God, the beginning point for building your biblical worldview is to acknowledge and accept that there is one God and the Father of Jesus who is the maker of heaven and earth. And specifically, we have to add to that that there's one God, but not just that there's one God, but that he is the Father of Jesus. Because Jesus helps explain who God is. See, the thing about it is there are other religions who are monotheistic, who believe in that one, there's one great being or one God. But not all acknowledge that the one true God is the father of Jesus. See, we understand God through Jesus because when he says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, then the question is, who is the son? then he reveals the fact that he's the son that God gave. 
But then we understand that God is not this God who's unknowable, but that he is personal and wants to come into relationship with mankind because he's willing to allow his son to come and to die for the sins of the world that he might redeem man back to himself. Now we begin to see why this is important because if we don't understand who God really is, then other things can come in and begin to infect. And notice I said infect our understanding. One of the shows I love to watch, uh, it's called, uh, man, my mind is, <laughs> I, I'm saying I love these things, I can't remember, right? Well, let me do this, I, I, I'll show my other example. One of the greatest basketball players that we know was recently being interviewed and he was talking about some challenges that were happening. And he said, I'm just hoping that the basketball gods will shine favorably upon us. Now the show comes to me. The show Wicked Tuna, where they're catching big tuna fish. Episode after episode, as they're not catching, they'll say, we're hoping that the fish gods will shine favorably upon us. Notice how subtle this is, that there are gods for the fishing, <laughs> gods for the hooping, and I bet some cowboy fans might believe there's some gods for football. But the challenge here is that then that begins to suddenly shape the ideology of who God is or who God's are. So we got to first start with knowing who God is. But then we begin to understand that the, what we were taught was that there was this evolution of things that then resulted in what we see today. Because I said you have to come to this approach, not with just philosophy and intelligence, but you have to come with faith. Because here's what Paul said in that same second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by him. See, by coming into this place of recognize, you cannot be born again unless you first believe there's a God. And you can't be born again unless you first believe that there's a son that was sent to die for your sins. So if I begin to confuse my ideology of who God is, then how can I be saved? So when I come to the process by faith, having accepted that God is who he is and who Jesus is, and then he borns me again and puts the spirit in me, then he said, now this becomes true because now I can begin to understand the things of God because I've got God's spirit living in me. So we understand God, we understand creation. Creation is the next part of this because I'm going to move, I got another couple of scriptures, but I'm going to move past those to get to this because I want to get to the creation. 
there are several things that you'll have. If you, I, I encourage you last week, uh, to, if you're not accustomed to doing this, to go ahead and download the, the sermon notes because there's much more. There's several passages of Scripture here that speak to what I'm saying now in terms of God. It helps to solidify that. But for the purpose of time, I want to make sure to keep moving forward. Is that okay? Amen. No, Pastor, take all the time you want. I don't mind doing that. Hey, listen, I can preach for an hour. Let's move on. Creation, creation. A biblical worldview also contends that God is set apart from and is transcended from his creation. Because we talked about karma and the universe and that how all of it is all kind of intertwined. But we have to first understand that creation is set apart from God. He transcends creation. He's not a part of creation. He created creation. So he's not a part of the whole scheme. He is the one who set it all up. So we understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, he says, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Those who dwell in it speaks to humanity. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here's the thing. Verse 2 says, for he has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the foot. It is he who has made it and fashioned it so we understand God, once we understand who God is, we begin to understand creation. That it couldn't have, now here's the thing that always puzzled me. Even in second grade, when we first started talking about it, Big Bang Theory. Because every time I've seen something blow up, I've never seen it put anything together. Boom, and you got chaos. But the explanation says that boom, and you got order. So the key, and I get it, I understand that there's been others that have intelligently uh, helped to dispel the idea, but still, it's still prevalent in people's minds. So we understand creation through who God is. The next thing, the next area, because there's two things about creation that you must understand. So understanding creation understands from a biblical perspective, it helps us understand that God made everything else in the earth to serve the purpose of man. That means that everything else in the world is anthropocentric, meaning that it is man-centered. When you go back and look in verse, uh, in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God made man and gave him dominion over all the earth. See, understanding creation through God's lens then helps us understand humanity and our place in it because God made everything else in the earth to be man-centered, but he made man to be theocentric meaning that we're supposed to be God-centered. So man has been created to have dominion over the earth, but then to serve God and live to please him. All created in God's plan. Humanity, even though humanity is where the capstone of God's creation and the highest in the order of his creation, 
because we're supposed to be theocentric, we're supposed to, even though we understand, we are the only ones that have the concept or the ability to reason. Everything else God created functions out of primarily instinct. That's why no matter how trained that lion is and how trained the elephant, the elephant can spend years just going through the motions of what it's been trained to do. And then one day his instincts happen. So we understand that God's creation is man-centric, but we are intended to be God-centered. Let's move forward. Excuse me. Humanity, we are all free moral agents. So we understand that we are operating out of this sense of we could make choices in and of ourselves. Understanding that we're free moral agents and then also understanding that we have a sin nature that helps us to begin to understand morality because we begin to understand that no matter what we do is going to be affected by this sin nature. Paul says that when I will go to do good, evil's present. I know we've misinterpreted that in many cases. We, we, didn't, we didn't point it at people. When I was trying to do good, evil was present. <laughs> but God is saying, no. If you read the full chapter of chapter 7 of Romans, you realize that Paul's talking about self. He says, when I will go to do good, I take me with me. That sin nature, that part of me that still wants to do wrong. So we understand morality in the sense that if God is the one who is control, who set up the order, then from a biblical perspective, we understand how we are to conduct ourselves in this world. Because creation is man-centered, man is God-centered. And thus, man looks to God to have dominion over his life as God put man in dominion over the earth. Here's a couple other things. Because when Paul talks about this sense of uh, morality, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, here's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when we understand from a biblical perspective of what, how we are to approach morality, we understand that I start with understanding, Jesus, how would you have me to live? Yes. Remember some years ago, we had the little bands, W. W-J-D. Boy, somebody made a whole bunch of money, didn't they? T-shirts, hats, necklaces, chains, little bands on the wrist. But we would wear it and not even think for a moment, what would Jesus do? I saw a lady cussing somebody out. I said, wonder what Jesus would have done. Had her band and T-shirt on. She hadn't thought about it. What would Jesus do? Because Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left. Now, I know that ain't easy. Because I know, you know, some of us, that your, your, your left and your, your right, your uppercut ain't been saved yet. It's still, you, it's, 
It's in that process. Your backhand ain't saved. You know what? Uh, wait a minute. Hold on. Your, your Smith, and, Smith and Wesson ain't saved yet. You, you're, trying to, you're trying to get him in church yet. He ain't, he ain't come in yet. You still, still got him. I, Smith and Wesson, I don't know. If it, I don't, I'm not a gun guy. I don't know. Uh, Smith and Wesson still been made? Beretta. You know, uh, okay, there you go. Your, your Magnum. Uh, you know, I don't know. So watch this now. But I understand what he's saying. He's saying that before I react, I need to stop. Because here's what, he, what you got to understand. In order to turn your head, you got to stop and think. Somebody slapped, you ain't just going, it's not reflex. Get this side too. You have to stop for a moment and think, what would Jesus do? That's what he's telling you to understand. Somebody slapped, he said, now stop and think, what would I do? How would I react in this moment? Because everything in you is not going to try to turn that head. You're going to jump back and start pulling earrings off and taking nails off. You're going to get, take a, hold this for me. But it's in this context of understanding I've been crucified in Christ. It's not me living, but Christ is living in me. And I'm, I'm striving to live as he would have me to live. Amen? Okay, I got to get going. Uh, so finally, then we talk about, you know what, I don't want to miss this one. I want to read this for you. Because when we start talking about what motivates us as a believer to live moral lives, it's motivated by this sense of God's love for us. Here's what John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This idea of God loving me. So when I'm striving to live right, when I'm striving to do what God would have, I do that because of this ever-developing love I have for him that wants him to be well-pleased with me. There's no greater pleasure than when I look and I see that my children are looking for my approval or my affirmation when they're excited because they're doing something that they believe daddy will be pleased in. And I recognize in their expression that they're glad, that I'm glad that they did the right thing. That's what motivates morality in the believer. Not just trying to figure out what the rules is, because you know what rules are. Rules are made to be what? When we look at living for God as a rule book, then we try to find the loophole. We, gotta, we become attorneys then, you know, yeah, you become attorneys of the scriptures. Like, yeah, so technically, <laughs> Paul, when he was saying that he was actually speaking to, because at that point, we don't see that Christ, the Christ remedy in that. I'm living for Christ's sake. Okay, I'm out of time, guys, so let me do this. This last one is government. So, the last area that is informed by your biblical worldview is government. Here's something that you need to understand. The Bible, in fact, commands Christians to submit to the governing authorities. Romans chapter, no, you want to write this one down. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the author and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
He also then, the Bible also commands us to also pray for those who are in authority. First Timothy chapter two, verse one and two, here's what it says. And it says to pray for the kings and all who are in authority that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. So here's what you need to understand. You may not be in agreement with the person elected, but by God's biblical standard, you're still supposed to respect them. Uh-oh, it got quiet. <laughs> because if God says you're supposed to pray for them, you know you, it's hard for you to pray for somebody you don't like. I ain't praying for him. He's a devil. A wolf in sheep clothing. That's why we're talking about not your worldview, but a biblical worldview. So Pastor Martin, answer this question for me. How am I supposed to understand? Because Paul, not only when he talks about praying for them, he's not talking about, hey, God bless him <laughs> in office. Look what he says. This is what he actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, wait a minute, supplications when you really invest yourself in praying. You might even cry out to the Lord in supplication. Supplications, prayer, here it is, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, starting out with that, and then it said, and for the kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead those quiet and peaceful lives. He says, we, we got to truly pray for our, our leadership. No matter who it is. We say, Pastor, well, then how then, how then, how then, when I don't agree with their policies, I don't agree with their, their philosophy or their thoughts, how do I accept that? I got an answer. You have to disagree with respect. You can express your disagreement without becoming derogatory towards the office. Here's it, here it is. This doesn't necessarily mean that, you're, that you will endorse all of their policies or approve of every specific action that they take. Because we live in a democratic society where we're supposed to critically assess those who are looking to be elected. So I can disagree, but I must because I want to make sure that my disagreement is still respectful of what my biblical worldview is, that I'm supposed to pray for those in authority, that nevertheless, as a Christian, the responsibility is to uphold biblical righteousness in a hostile culture. When we get to the point that we start pounding our fists on political matters, we can easily find ourselves on a slippery slope into beginning to dishonor what the word of God says God has put in authority. So I can disrespect with the person in the office, but I respect the office. Did you get that? How do I do that? After you've done your disagreement, leave it at that. You get into, yeah, 
you start cracking old dirt, old, old bad jokes about them and start talking about all kind of old sleazy things. You're off into the wrong area. Because that's where your responsibility comes in as a prayer, to pray for them. Pastor Larry said this earlier. He said that we approve, God can change hearts. We pray for those who get elected because ultimately we live in a world that there's widespread deception and confusion. So it's our responsibility to continue to lift them up. That concludes our message for today. And we want to thank you for listening to the Amity Bible Church. If you would like to contact us or attend our 630 Wednesday night Bible study, visit us at amitybc.org. Until next week, be blessed.